You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Windsor Framework delivers free-flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom. It protects Northern Ireland's place in our union and it safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. Two-thirds of Northern Ireland back the Windsor Framework. That's according to the latest Belfast Telegraph Lucid Talk polling. That would seem like good news for Rishi Sunak and the UK government. But the same poll tells us that a whopping 73% of DUP supporters say no to the deal. This is a very complex uh, document, the framework. So now we need to assess um, what this new framework means. Uh, is it, uh, does it do what we need in terms of restoring Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom and its internal market? So what are the figures telling us? I'm joined by Bill White from Lucid Talk, as well as commentator Alex Kane, with their take on what the polls are telling us. Alex, Bill, you're very welcome to the studio. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Very Thank well, you. Welcome once again to the Bell Tell. Bill, let's start with the poll. And before we started off, we were talking about which headline do we pick out. Now, for me, I chose to say two thirds of Northern Ireland back this deal and other headline writers have said, well, no, the big story here is 73% of the DUP say no. Take us through the headline figures. Well, well, you summarise them well. I mean, the two key headline figures are the ones you've just covered. Um, the overall Northern Ireland has got a healthy majority pro the Windsor Framework Agreement. But of course, as we know, Northern Ireland's made up of three communities. So we have the vast majority of the Alliance Green voter base and the vast majority of the Nationalist Republican voter base, those who vote for the SDLP and Sinn Féin support the Windsor Framework as they have supported the Northern Ireland Protocol. And, of course, we know the issue here politically is what is the views of the unionist community. And when we look at that, you have said it again, the the, the other big headline is that 73% of the DUP voter base, which is the major unionist party, as you know, are, would vote against the Windsor Framework if uh, there was a Northern Ireland referendum on that particular topic. Now, there's other unionist groups as well, of course. We know the UUP voter base and the TUV voter base. The TUV, not surprisingly, uh, is well over 90% anti the Windsor Framework Agreement because that's the party policy of the TUV. The UUP is more interesting in that nearly two-thirds of the UUP said they would vote for the Windsor Framework, uh, the UUP voter base, which is a bit higher than I expected, um, a bit of a surprise. I expect it to be more 50-50, if you like. Um, there's still a substantial minority of the UUP voters would vote against it. And uh, not 
particularly surprisingly uh, with the positions and policy positions the UUP take, there's a very high sizable don't knows among the UUP voter base in terms of how they would vote in a referendum. So that's a quick summary of um, the main results, I think, from the from the poll. Some of the, the, the headline figures, I mean, it's Alliance Green voters, 98%, mm. Nationalists, 97%. Yes. Those are to be expected, but they sure. are extraordinary figures in themselves. Whenever you hear of, an, of a president getting elected with 98% of the vote, you, you're always a bit doubtful. But unionists overall, it's 38%. Alex, that seems to me like it's not going to work. Well, I, I think unionists still have their, their, their problems in terms of the, the, the sovereignty and identity position. And it's fine, I think, if you went down and, and, and if Bill had asked further questions, I mean, are you pleased by the changes you please in terms of business and trade and so on? And you, I think a lot of them said, yes, progress has been made and we welcome that progress. Mm. But no amount of progress in terms of business and trading and red lanes, green lanes, whatever type of lanes you have, is going to answer, if you like, maybe the existential question for unionism is our position in the United Kingdom different today than it was in, say, 10 years ago? And a lot of them feel that. And I think that's the problem with the, with the, the protocol and with the, the framework version of it. They still think that somehow Northern Ireland is not quite as much within the United Kingdom as it was uh, pre-Brexit. But I, I'm always in, uh, interested, in, I know it wasn't asked, because I think right at this point, I, I can understand the figures didn't surprise me. Ulster's Party, I agree, at 54, a little bit higher than I thought for accepting it. But I, I think the, the more interesting question, it'll be also how the DUP will, will maybe push this line over the next few weeks, is if you say to people, this is no longer, it's not simply a, que- a question of whether or not you agree with the framework document or not. Do you want to go to the next stage? that is it now a question of choice between devolution and direct rule? So would you, if, if the only way of keeping devolution was to do it under the framework document, would you be willing to make that move? Or, or is it so unacceptable to you that even if it meant the end of devolution, mm-hmm. you would reject it? And I think that when Bill mentioned in, in his article on Saturday about this wriggle room that you, you, Jeffrey Donaldson will be looking for, it's in that area because it's, it's in the question, the second question. We know where they stand in the protocol. That's why there's no change in the Sinn Féin and Nationalist and Alliance approach to the, between the protocol question and the framework document, even though the framework is different you know, from some some of the stuff in the NI protocol that they supported in exactly the same way. But it's just going to be interesting, you know, the devolution versus direct route, because that's a, for unionists, that's maybe the, the question, because that, are they better protected with devolution or with direct rule? Mm, that's true. And the, the stats, the polling also reveals, Bill, that, uh, that there maybe has been some softening in opposition to the framework from unionism. Yeah, yes, there, there has been, um, and uh, certainly that was part of Suzanne Breen's analysis on Saturday. And she's quite correct about that. It is quite small. She did say that as well. I mean, it's uh, but it's notable. It's something that Jeffrey Donaldson will have noted, uh, and then it's is as Alex said that term wriggle room. There is some wriggle room there. If Jeffrey wants to go, uh, as he said in my article on Saturday, if he wants to go for the landing of a soft yes to this, to use that term, you know, a yes to the Windsor framework, then he has got some room for maneuver. There, but it's not great. I mean, the January poll we ran, which is a slightly different question, because obviously we didn't know about the Windsor framework then, uh, was would there be a light, you know, would you accept a lighter touch protocol? Which 
in reality, you could be fair to say that the Windsor framework is that in a broader sense. So the, the questions are similar. It was 41% of unionists who said they wanted the protocol removed completely in that poll. And that's now dropped to 35% of unionists who want the protocol removed um, completely. So 41 to 35, 6%. It's notable, but you know, it's not something to get excited about in terms of the unionists are completely changing their mind. There's still a very large, hardcore unionist base there who want the protocol removed completely. Obviously, you know, that was made up of 95% of TUV supporters and this broadly a large chunk of the 73% of DUP voters who said they would vote against the Windsor framework. So Jeffrey's got to manage that constituency. And uh, of course, they've got their own spokespeople within the DUP community, such as, you know, Ian Paisley Jr. and um, Sammy Wilson to an extent and uh, certain others, you know. Before I get into the DUP and Jeffrey Donaldson's dilemma now, can we just go very quickly through age, class mm. and gender? Because I know mm-hmm. there'll be some people out there saying, well... On, and everything regarding Brexit and everything that came with it, younger people had a different opinion than older people. Can we can we say anything more about those? Yes, indeed. I mean, we did an analysis by the four main, um, if I think of three or four main demographics, um, which were age, gender, uh, and socioeconomic class. Those are the three uh, main ones that we did. Um, the age one, not surprisingly, and as would be expected, younger people. Now, I have to say these demographics are done the whole of Northern Ireland. This includes nationalists, Republicans, unionists, etc. A representative sample of Northern Ireland. And broadly, significantly more younger people would support the Windsor framework and the Northern Ireland Protocol than older people. As we move through the age groups, it drops away in terms of support. Um, the uh, socioeconomic groupings, which is the, if you want to put it crudely, middle class versus working class. Again, as would be expected, more middle class people are supportive than working class people. Um, Interestingly, on the gender side, um, it is notable uh, that more females tend towards supporting the Windsor framework than than males, um, which I found interesting. Uh, So basically what you're looking at is that the males, if you want to look at where the anti- uh, Windsor framework is and the anti-Northern Ireland protocol within the unionist community tends to be towards the older age groups it tends to be towards the male um, uh, the male gender and it also tends to be towards more the working class to lower middle class groupings um, of of that particular demographic so that gives you a broad feel of where they where the demographics fit in Thanks for that. I just wanted to discuss those, of course, because I knew you you'd collected those uh, mm-hmm. polls. I know there are people who would be out there saying younger people and people from different backgrounds, et cetera, who would be listening to us perhaps and saying, well, there they go again, talking about the two communities or the three communities, et cetera. But let's get to the nitty gritty and let's get to the meat of the situation. Jeffrey Donaldson's dilemma now, and these polls and these statistics will be adding to the situation where he now finds himself in. And I mean, it's been the term, you know, this an existential question for the union more than what we're talking about, trade regulations, etc. And he's not saying no. He's not saying yes. It feels like a no to me. That's just my opinion on it. Um, but if it is a no, would he really take unionism down that road? 
What do you think, Alex? Well, it, it, it's certainly a huge dilemma for him and a huge decision he has to make. But I'm just reminded, if you go back to it, well, well, it's worth saying the, the Democratic Unionist Party is capable of U-turns on an epic and monumental scale. I just think if, if Bill had been doing lucid talk polls back in sort of March 2007 at the time of that election, and the question had been uh, uh, for Unionist voters and DUP voters in particular, would you support the Reverend Dan Paisley sitting as First Minister to Martin McGuinness as Deputy? First Minister, Bill would have been recording 90% plus of DUP voters saying no, but within weeks of that election, that's exactly what we got. And there was no, apart from Jim Allister, oddly enough, resigning from the party and setting up TUV a few weeks later, who has ironically become the thorn in the flesh now for Geoffrey Donaldson, there were no resignations from the DUP um, uh, Assembly Party or Parliamentary Party. There was certainly no downturn, uh, downturn in it, 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 its voter at the following election or in its membership basis. So it is capable of those U-turns if it gets the key demographics, which is the inside the party, which is the, the party office and the party executive and people say oh we can't Jeffrey can't move now because Nigel Dodds and Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley I remember and Bill will remember this as well David Trimble back in 1998 had half his parliamentary party against him it had one point it half the party officers it didn't matter because it was the ordinary grassroots members of the party who the ones who knocked the door the ones who did the, the hard work day in day out they were the ones that said to Trimble no press ahead with this and Geoffrey will know this because Geoffrey was there at the time so he will learn he'll pick up some of the the, 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 the information and some of the memories of that period and I think his instinct his instinct is to do the deal. His instinct is to bring the DUP back into this because I think, I, I, I don't want to over-egg it and say he's afraid of the consequences of direct rule, but he would worry about direct rule, as would many people in the Democratic Unionist Party. So he has to put a coherent argument. And Bill's right, he will have his experts, he will have people, five or six nerds in the DUP right now who will be, we both know who they are, they will be drilling into every single aspect of Bill's polling information, and they, will, they, they do, Bill. And they will be looking at it and they will be looking for the wriggle room we're talking about. And if they reach in a matter of weeks, Peter Robinson, uh, Peter Weir, Arlene Foster, they will be looking. They've been through this as well. If they can see a route, if they can find that route, they will take the party down that route. I mean, this is a key point that Alex has said. Of course, a leadership and a leader within a political party has influence. So if Jeffrey came out today, for example, and said, I've looked at this, we're going to give it a qualified yes or a yes to the Windsor framework, that would swing a chunk of those 73% or no. Now, the big factor is Jeffrey's got to make a judgment just how much of that 73% is not going to accept that and going to go to the Jim Allister route, etc. Could be 40%, it could be 10%. That's where the political judgment comes in. But a leader, of course, has got impact. As Alex has said, David Trimble has impact. He was able to keep the a large chunk of his basic voter base on board with him within the party. The only trouble with David Trimble is it wasn't the 70-30, it was 55-45, 52-48. It got very narrow in the end, and that gets difficult to manage. So Jeffrey's got to make that judgment of what is making up that 73%. Could it be just people? Well, they're against it at the moment. I'll follow the leader. And if Jeffrey comes out pro it, there will be a chunk of them said, well, don't like it, but I'll follow what Jeffrey and the leadership of the DUP are doing. But that's that is a political judgment and polling plays a part of that yes I agree with you and the research but they've also got to get a feel from key people people on the ground I would also say Alex in 2007 Jim Allister formed the TUV after that Ian Paisley at that time you know, that was before Jim Allister left the party when Ian Paisley made that decision to share power with Martin McGinn he didn't have anybody on his right 
Now, you know, he, Jim Allister's not in the same role as Ian Paisley was to David Trimble, but they got 7.6% in the recent Northern Ireland Assembly election last year, 2022. It's a sizable chunk of votes. That's over a third of what the DUP got. You know, it's more, so it's um, the DP got twenty one point six percent of the share of the vote. But I think, sorry, the, thing, I think the point I was going to make, and I think it's, it's worth emphasising, with uh, particularly with, with Robinson, who was de facto leader of the Democratic Unionist Party all the way through. Once they took possession of that decision, once they decided this is what they were doing, they went down on the ground, they campaigned inside the party and they knew there'd be problems. I have talked to people since then and said yeah, we were aware of the problems then, Alex. And I know certainly through the Ulster Unionist Party there was an on-the-ground exercise taking place before all the key Ulster Unionist Council vote. They went down, they talked to the, t- the, the key people at local level and I'm just saying, and Bill touched upon it, if Geoffrey Donaldson and the key people who he trusts most take possession of this and say we are going to give this a go, we're going to not just suck it and say no, we're going to we're going to push it. I think it will change the figures. But I think it's also he's never going to say yes right now. He, the Prime Minister's given them until the end of the month before he has to make a decision. Um the Chris Heaton Harris has moved it slightly by saying, Well, we might have a vote on it before the end of the month. But there's no point being told you have another three weeks and then say, Oh, by the way, we 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 we're saying yes and no no. They don't I've seen these things over the years. They from a solid no to a, where did that yes come from? And I've seen it happen the other way as well. Uh, and it evolves. Yes. Nigel Dodds, um, Sammy Wilson, Ian Paisley have all been making noises, I think this is a political term. Do you think there are real internal tensions in the DUP or are these just things being said for the sake of being said? I, I think there's an element of things being said for the sake of being said. I think um, some of these people, don't forget um, it's, uh, Nigel, um, Ian and Sammy in particular, I think I remember that that thing with Ian standing in the, the chamber you know, with a rolled up order paper in his hand pointing at the, the benches and saying, why have you done this to us? Why have you betrayed us? Why have you let us down? He feels, he feels that yet again, every time they've said trust the ERG or trust the Prime Minister or trust the, the the foreign secretary or trust whoever is the chief negotiator they have been let down and suddenly they're in this position well yes they would I think they would imagine and some of the DUP even who will back this feel that they've been let down again that they've been given no room to manoeuvre there is a hurt in that but again I think as the, as the conversation evolves over the next few weeks and it will become okay what's better direct rule or devolution. I think the voices of those who are in the Lords or don't have any election at any point, the voices of those in the House of Commons who, who aren't going to lose salaries, aren't going to lose careers, I think. And people say, oh, this it, it doesn't come down. It does. You're looking at, uh, what, 25 DUP MLAs, I think, have got careers. You're looking at maybe another 75 um, office staff and people like this. And if this comes down, it isn't just the assembly closes, the structure that the DUP has in terms of on-the-ground influence in Northern Ireland goes with it. And that's why all political parties, they can sound very brave and some of them can sound terribly gung-ho if they don't take the immediate hit. But for others, there are a lot of people who have been in the party for years who would worry about, if this goes down, what do we do? Because we've only got eight, M- or eight MPs in Westminster and they've shown absolutely no power to influence anything, you know, in general terms since 2017. If we look at what Jeffrey's saying, on, on, on one hand he's saying fundamental problems. On the other hand, he sends significant progress. So those are maybe the two angles. He says this in, in the one sentence. And then he said, it's my current assessment that there remains key areas of concern which require further clarification. Well, that's not hard. Uh, reworking, don't know about that. And change, 
that could be the sticking point, as well as seeing further legal text. Well, that could be sorted. But is there any point, do you think, that the DUP could overplay their hand? Because Rishi Sunak says, this is it. There's no other deal out there. Is it possible that the DUP could really push Europe further? Or is this it? Well, certainly from my, you know, I uh, will hear what Alex says. Um, uh, you know, I'd be interested in his views, but certainly it seems to me that there's going to be very little uh, change in real terms made to the Windsor framework. But of course, as we all know in politics, it's, you know, the spin comes into it and how it's presented. And uh, if Jeffrey can present that he's going, he's getting two or three additions to the Windsor framework, maybe backed up and agreed by, with the Prime Minister, um, Rishi Sunak, that he makes some speech, you know, making a, the union is solid for the next uh, generation and we support Northern Ireland, maybe combined with an economic uh, package, etc. Then that gives him the sort of atmosphere where he can say a qualified yes. I don't think, um, I don't think in reality, Jeffrey is going to, from this position, come out with a complete unqualified yes to the Windsor framework. I think he's got to come out with a qualified yes, a yes with a small y, to use that term. And, uh, or, or, or a no with a but. Or a no with a but. It depends how you defend it. He may not use the words yes and no. He may use acceptance to, with the proviso, et cetera. I was, I was interested in your point about those two terms. And I didn't know they were actually in the same sentence. thought they were in the same interview, but that's fair enough. But um, uh, you no, know, no. But I'm just saying just how, I'm just making that in a humorous way because it just shows you the balance that he's got to uh, go along. And it's, it's, it's difficult. So, Well, I, I think... What the DUP accept now? Um, with the protocol, the, the, the 2019 version came as a huge shock to them. But they were told after you know a few months that uh, Boris was going to look into it further and they would reopen it and that caused all sorts of anguish. And they sent Lord Frost off to be the chief negotiator and he was going to play tough and so on. Um, the difference with this one is that I think the DUP have accepted, they may not say it loudly at the minute or if at all, but they have accepted that when the Prime Minister has said this is going to the House of Commons this is, and the, the, the leader of the opposition has said he's going to back it and I presume we can take it that the SNP and Lib Dems are going to back it as well. This is a Prime Minister who at the end of this month is going to come out with a, a, an agreement he has got and he says it has been massively endorsed by the Sovereign Parliament of the United Kingdom. We're not renegotiating this, we're not changing this. You you guys have to make a decision. Now, that's when Jeffrey has this huge problem. Do you just, he can't make it look like a rollover. He knows the problems, but he can't just say, okay, we surrender. We'll just have to live with it. And he won't be a hard yes. It won't be a hard no. It'll be something, let's call it a soft landing. And that soft landing may be, you know, be as, as ungainly as, you know, a paralytic camel landing on a huge jelly somewhere. <laughs> but they will find that place. And if if even the Prime Minister is able to say, maybe the, the, the EU will will come along with this as well say look we understand your problem we can't solve we can't solve the problem for you in terms of how you feel your identity and your citizenship the United Kingdom is involved but what we can say to you is that we will run we guarantee you over the next few years a watching brief in exactly the same way that we recognise there were problems with the protocol and we addressed those we made them better you yourselves have admitted we made them better so we will guarantee you this Mr Donaldson we will guarantee that for the next two, five years whatever it is we will watch and if it looks like things aren't working for both of us as we would want them we will change them it won't require a big deal but we will change them Jeffrey can bank something like that. What what the EU cannot offer him, the only person that can offer him is is the Prime Minister, it's the government of the United Kingdom, which is look, you're worried about your constitutional identity. You know. 
I don't know. In one sense, I don't know how he addresses that because he says your 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 union is is exactly as it was in 1921 when the, it lay with the the Parliament as long as a majority of the Northern Ireland Parliament agreed to uh, Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. You would stay in the United Kingdom. Go all the way down 72, 85, the the Good Friday Agreement. As long as a majority of people, that is in essence the constitutional guarantee. It has been there for a century. I don't know what else you know the um, a prime minister can say, but I do know one thing. I do know that um, I, I I don't think it would ever be enough for some elements of new generation generation loyalism or for the TUV. It depends how big that size is. Can I just yes. say as well, there's a, there's a factor here. Uh, remember the last assembly election, or most recent election, is still only nine, ten months ago. It's not it's not a yes, year yet. Um, the DUP were rattled with that. I just know from the sources <laughs> that I've been told that uh, our polls uh, building up to that election were being ridiculed quite extensively. Oh, not at all. We'll do much better than people expect. They thought that they stopped Sinn Féin becoming first minister would be more powerful and still hold on to 90, 95% of their vote. The drop from the 29 down to the 21.6%, we predicted them at 20%, 20.5% actually, so we got it within 1%. Sorry, this sounds like a minor ego trip here, but I have to say that. <laughs> but that uh, we got it quite accurately. The DUP were very quiet after that, and I know from other sources they were rattled. And that can rattle politics. There's lots of politicians who know they're going into an election, they're going to get destroyed. They're, they're expecting it. They're prepared for it. The big thing that rattles politics politicians is, and it applies all over the world and applies in Britain, is if they go into an election, the result is much worse than they expected because that means they're misreading the electorate and that makes them nervous. And that there's elements of the DUP are still within that nervousness. I would say Jeffrey Donaldson is, and he's just trying to gauge and trying to find out. And this is where the research comes in. As Alex has said, meeting people on the ground, they don't want to walk into something try to make a decision and then find out there's a substantial section of their voter base uh, don't agree with that decision or much higher than they thought it would be. So that nervousness is still in, in with inside the DUP and it's there from last year's assembly election because they were certainly expecting a drop in the vote. There's no doubt about that. But they weren't expect, they were expecting to get around 25, 26% vote share, but it dropped 5% below that. So and that's still within the DUP, that nervousness. Alex, you mentioned a fascinating term, which I'd never heard, new generation loyalism. And I I suspect you're talking about a certain Mr. Bryson. Yes, Jamie Bryson, uh, Moore Homes. People People have emerged over the past few years and they're not, they they don't go before. We only heard their names after the Good Friday Agreement. And they have an influence because they're clearly unhappy with elements of it. And those elements need to be addressed because I've I've met, I do, you know, below the radar stuff. I've met young people who are very unhappy. And you say, why? Why are you unhappy? You don't remember what it was like in the previous 25 years. But they will tell you the same thing over and over and over again. We feel like we've been left behind. We feel like our generation has been left behind. Our, the older guys did this. They fought for this. They put up claims. They took risks for a peace process. What did they get for it? And I think whatever you think about Jimmy Bryson, he has quite successfully tapped into that that feeling. And I still think there's a there's a sense of, across elements of unionism and nationalism and both the British and Irish government that some, oh, it'll go away. It's an irritant. It isn't an irritant. Because I heard this language. I'm old. I'm 60. I'll be 68 in a few months. I remember this language in the early 70s. Because when all these old loyalists were young men, you know, I'm saying, oh, let's ignore them. They won't get anywhere. And I just, I'm not talking about violence. I'm just saying when you have very unhappy demographics within an electorate or within a population, you're building up problems if you don't actually go and maybe you can't fix it for them 
but at least you need to talk to them sensibly. What is it? Is there something we can do? And it isn't just a case, oh, well, I think Jamie's line is we're not going to sit at the back of the bus anymore. That's extraordinary language to use because I have no idea when that generation would have ever sat at the back of a bus because I, I'm not quite sure in what way they think they are being ill-treated or treated unequally but somehow it has seeped through into their psyche that they are second-class citizens and add to that the fact that they're looking at a, a protocol which seems to say well you're not really part of the United Kingdom anyway you know you, you may have taken this vote on Brexit and we guarantee that you're a full-fledged integral part of the United Kingdom but when it comes to this 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 and this you're not that spooks them as well that needs to be addressed and I think the EU and the Irish government and ambassador across Europe. You know, I've, I've talked over the years about this. I think they, you know, it's still unaddressed. But equally, having said that, they mustn't assume that they have the power or the right to say to everybody else, including elected representatives of unionism or nationalism, "I'm sorry, our opinion is more important than yours," because it's not. Well, Downing Street say that's it. There's no other deal out there. Jamie Bryson's reply to that said, "Dead on. There'll be no power sharing ever again." Then now I know that's a bit of rhetoric for Twitter. But, I mean, what you're saying is that people like Moore Holmes and Jimmy Bryson, I know they don't electorally represent anyone, but they represent a demographic and a feeling. And that's something which I think sometimes people are thinking, why is Jeffrey Donaldson, why does he appear to be listening to these people? But it is a demographic which he has to take account well, of. Yes, he's in, I mean, Jeffrey Donaldson's operating within that pool. I mean, that's his supporter base. That's a good point you've made, actually, because you hear sometimes from the Alliance spokesperson, it's not their fault, it's not a criticism, and from nationalists, oh, for example, use Jim Allister as an example. He's one person, you know, we heard remark one seat Jim on the media recently um, you know why do you worry to, you know why is it perceived that Jeffrey is worrying what Jim, Jim Allister is is thinking but what Jeffrey's concerned about is the 7.6% that they achieved in last year's election and the 6 and 7% and 8% poll ratings they're currently getting that's the TUV I'm talking about that is the same voter pool that Jeffrey's operating and these are people he has to meet these are people he has to at least get along with him or a substantial section going along with whatever he decides. If you want to be crude about it, the Alliance Party and the others don't actually worry about that. They just see the Jim Allister one seat up at Stormont. But that's not the thing that's concerning Jeffrey and his colleagues in the DUP. Is that supportive? And you've just mentioned about uh, the loyalist spokesperson, maybe for the younger type loyalist, Jamie Bryson, Moore Holmes, etc. They, you know, obviously represent that demographic as well. Uh, they're not successful electorally. They'll maybe some take part in elections, but they still represent that core that maybe feeds into that vote share that the TUV get. And that's the big thing that Jeffrey and the DUP would be uh, would be concerned about at this stage as they build up to this decision. I think it's also worth saying in, in terms of Jeffrey, as it was with David Trimble, as it was with every leader before them, unionism is not just one family. It's, it's, it's a very it's a very convoluted big tent entity. It, it, it's very divided. I mean, even the fact we talk moderate unionists, liberal unionists, small U unionists, extreme unionists, um, and break it up into what four parties at the minute and, and, and offshoots, the Orange Order, the, the LCC, the, the new generation loyalism I'm talking about. That's an awful lot of factions. So yes, Jeffrey Donaldson, if he's going to make a call one way or the other, 
he he needs to understand what all of these people are saying because yes maybe he will discover when he talks to other areas maybe when he gets into the orange maybe when he gets into elements of the LCC who were there back in 1998 who do remember what it was like under direct rule you know and how difficult life would be he may discover that when he talks to them say like guys to get the framework document forget this and so on it's a reality and the Prime Minister said it's a reality he's going to get it through Parliament are we going to take on a battle over the sovereign Parliament of the United Kingdom the very thing that those of us who wanted Brexit said this was all about about, or do we have to make a much more fundamental choice now between keeping a form of devolution where we have an input and influence at local level or do we walk away from that and say there's going to be a direct rule and this is going to be a lovely fancy pants direct rule which doesn't involve the Irish government, it doesn't involve Sinn Féin, it, it just involves union that's been kept happy. And so that world does not exist, it is never going to exist. So make a decision here guys, are you saying to me Take a risk, see if we can get this done. Are you saying to me, walk away from this completely? Because if you are, tell me what we do next. Tell me if, if we're not in that assembly and that assembly's down, not just for months, but maybe permanently. What are we doing on behalf of unionism? Are we just going with our eight or nine MPs and sim- simply saying to a British government, a sovereign parliament, do what we want or else. It, those days, I don't know if they ever existed. You need to go back to 1912, you know, before uh, it was a British friend, Bono Law, wasn't he? He said, there's no length that unionism can go to. And I imagine we wouldn't back them. You know, I wonder, it's one of the big ifs of history. If this First World War hadn't intervened, and that had been tested. You know, would the Conservative government say, that's fine, guys, if you want to shoot the representative of the British Army, if you want to go ahead, they wouldn't have, they would have pulled back. There is no emotional loyalty to unionism at Westminster at the moment. So whatever decision unionism makes, and I say this as someone who backed Brexit, whatever decision we make now, be very, very careful. And some of the younger generation, and I'm not knocking them, I was young and headstrong in my day and so on, but just be very careful because, yes, you might think you get rid of the, uh, um, the, the assembly, you might think you'll get rid of devolution. Good Friday agreement's not going to go away. The involvement of the, uh, of the Irish government in Northern Ireland politics is not going away. What will happen is that unionism will simply further divide. And that's what Geoffrey will also have in his mind. Mm-hmm. Even if he does push this through, <coughs> he's going to have Jim Alistair, probably Jamie and Moore, maybe the LCC, maybe the oh, Orange. The we don't yeah. know. It's going to be whatever way he swings with this, it brings huge. And I would not want to be in this. And the only thing I would say, I'm going to think, just in case he ever picks this up, Geoffrey had a moment. In, I think it was 2003 at the Ulster Unionist Council, he could have challenged David Trimble That's for the leadership. True. He would probably have won. He ended up allowing Martin Smith. If Geoffrey Donaldson had won the leadership at that point, everything now would have been different because the DUP would never have made the breakthrough. Mm. You, so much would have... And I think Geoffrey is at that moment of... He's reassessing... Right now, bless him, he's reassessing his whole life, all the decisions he has made because... I don't want to over-egg this, but the decision he makes in the next two weeks will be one of the most important decisions a unionist leader has made, certainly in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. You are a self-confessed pessimist, Alex. But how, I did, how did you say that? I, I'm usually so happy and joyful. I'm a happy pessimist is how I describe yes, myself. Yes. Um, but but I do get the sensation talking to you both today that you do, you know, I I was I, coming into before the, doing this podcast, I kind of thought, well, maybe Stormont, you know, there will never be a Stormont again. But talking to you both today, I'm getting the sensation you do believe deep down that a way will be found to reopen those doors on the hill. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> you can say, as you said, he may say no, Jeffrey, in the decision, no, but, but with some qualifications and they may go back into Stormont, et cetera. But, um, 
uh, as I said, uh, you know, as I wrote in the Belfast Telegraph on Saturday, it's a, it's a very narrow landing zone, and he's going to need a lot of uh, of a whole range of skills, including his oratory skills, his presentation skills. He's known to get help from his colleagues around him how this is presented. He's need to go. He's need. He will need. I'm talking about Jeffrey Donaldson here. He will need to to show at least there's some additions on the way to the Windsor framework or should I say some perceived additions on the way to the Windsor framework and some you know improvements to it um, some tweaks etc which he will present as major changes I'm sure or whatever so he's, he has to do something I don't think he's in the position of being interested in Alex's views of just coming out and giving an unqualified yes to this uh, at the moment I think they've gone too far down this uh, sort of committee I do think actually I'd be interested in Alex's views on this as well Obviously, I think it goes without saying that Peter Robinson has now come onto the scene in this, it seems to me, and he's going to have a major input into this. Um, and I think his decisions in this and how this is handled tactically it will be crucial uh, to, to Jeffrey. And Jeffrey will be listening very closely to that. But he is known as a very shrewd tactical political operator. I mean, he's got a lot of experience. Um, he knows enormous amount about opinion polling. You have to be on your toes when you're talking to uh, Peter Robinson, I can tell you. I've been in the game for a long time now and I know a lot about data and Peter is very knowledgeable on that Pacific side of it as well. Just as a matter of interest, I would say he's, he's you know the one politician who really knows his stuff about opinion polling and market research. Um, so, so certainly it's a difficult well, there is a landing zone, but it is it is pretty narrow. It, well, that landing zone is, as I said earlier, it's the it's the camel on the jelly. It's going to be difficult, but I think that's where he I've wants. I've never heard that term before. No, it's mine. I, I copyrighted <laughs> that before it turned up on Twitter. It's mine. Um, but yeah, it's um, I, I I I think it's um, what we said already. It's it's this. Either decision he makes is going to be a catastrophically uh, difficult one in terms of unions because I, I'm not sure whatever decision he makes can avoid a split because I think it's now mm. quite clear that the Ulster Unionist Party will go for for the yes. They will mm. say we can accept this. I mean, all of this is happening in, in, under the looming shadow of council elections. I mean, obviously politicians, political parties will always think about council elections. Now, councils, in theory, are about, you know, the bins and dog dirt on the street and things like this. And then the Very normal parts stuff, of by the way, of to course, a lot of people. Of, of course. <laughs> but uh, we do know that they're used as a platform for all sorts of things here. Uh, and so, and every... Every election, including council elections, turns into this battleground between the parties. Do you think that'll be a factor? And perhaps has the election come at a bad time? Well, yeah, if I could just kick off. Um, certainly, I mean, the local government elections are, are pretty key in this as well. You tend to find with local government elections, and the DUP will be using this in their calculations, they'll be looking at the strength of the candidates they're running locally. There, there, are, there is quite rightly, it was the, the clues in the word in the title, local. There is quite a lot of very good local representatives in all parties who've got themselves known on the ground and they have a personal vote. And this applies to all the political parties. And the DUP will be assessing can they hold on to that and run with that? Is that enough to act as a buffer, if you like, against what could be an anti-move and an increase in the TUV vote? But it's not the same as Assembly elections or Westminster elections where people do tend to vote more. And the research shows that they tend to vote in the more wider, um, you know, national, country, Northern Ireland, regional issues such as Stormont, such as the, the Windsor framework, etc. So that is a difficult calculation. This is why I said in the last podcast, I mean, pollsters all 
always find local government difficult because it's very difficult to get down at the local level. This happens nationally in the UK as well. It's very hard to know very popular local independent candidates running in East Anglia who tend to top the poll and beat the Conservative. But yet the conser- it's a safe Conservative seat at a Westminster election. But there's some local independent candidates who are very good local councillors and well-known and etc. So that that is a calculation the DUP will have to go through as well. So it is a difficult election in that context. Having said that, if there's any sudden moves, you know, any dramatic moves in the Windsor framework, if Geoffrey tries to go, um, you know, very much pro the Windsor framework or totally against it or whatever, it obviously it will have an effect on the election. But that tends to be countered sometimes by the local factors. And it's a very hard thing to gauge. And as I said, it's a it's the most difficult type of election for pollsters to poll on. I, I think in terms of the of the election, it's not due for what is eighteenth of May, so it's two months away. Yeah, we so will we will know away. the answer to the question of whether or not the Democratic Unionist Party is going to back the framework. If they don't back the framework, ironically, um, that makes the the election much more difficult for the TUV because there's no traction for for Jim Allister if he's saying exactly the same thing as the the DUP saying. But if they uh, if Jeffrey does come out and the DUP do come out and back. The, the framework. It'll make it an interesting election, but it's still going to be a difficult election for the TUV because it's, they really mean, they, they managed to get votes, but they didn't get seats in the Assembly election. And if it's, if the framework document is in place, if it's been passed through the Commons, even Jim, most loyal people might begin to say, well, well what's the point? What's the point of keeping on this, this fight? Because it, it's now there. You know, it, it is going to happen no matter whether we have direct rule or devolution, no matter whether we do well in the councils or not. Us doing well is not going to make a button of difference to the um, to the, the the Windsor framework document. So again, it goes back to what I, I was saying earlier: take possession of it early. And this is what uh, you know. In, in terms of Peter Robinson's presence, not only is, is Peter Robinson one of the the Peter Robinson. If, if it hadn't been for Peter Robinson, the DUP would never have become the party it became. And he was the one that went out in the middle of the night to all sorts of places, took two or three people in a room. He built it up. There was no aspect of that party he didn't understand or didn't control. He knew how to head out. He brought in some of the really good experts who would have worked in, in any other region of the United Kingdom, the Parliament or something. They would have had jobs because they were that good. But Robinson is also brilliant at looking at the making what you call the most brutal choices of all. Is it, it, this is difficult. We're going to go for it. We're going to give it everything we've got on all the big decisions, all the so-called U-turns, all the manoeuvres and regular rooms that were available mm. were done through Peter Robinson. And as I, as I yeah. said earlier as well, Peter Robinson is the one political leader here. One politi- I know he's not actively involved now, but he's the one politician who really understands elections. He knows polling. He knows elections. He knows how to run campaigns. He knows the minutiae. And so he will be looking at the local government. And if they want a, a chap in there who really knows how to process the local government elections, yeah. depending on what decisions are made over the next few weeks, as Alex has said, then they have got the uh, the, the the right man and Peter Robinson. Well, I was going to say as well. I remember Peter Robinson saying years ago about uh, I can't even remember what it was about, but he just made an interesting point. Sometimes when it comes to decisions and what you need in it, there's a there can be a a, a battle between the required and the desired. Mm. And I think that's that's how he thinks. That's how his strategy works. Because I think he's he's wise enough to know that you can't always get what you want. But if you've got enough that you can sell, 
that's what really matters. And I think that's why it's interesting to have. Also interesting that Arlene Foster is in that mix as well because mm. uh, that raised that's a few right, eyebrows. She yeah. and Jeffrey go back a long way. And I'm pretty sure, you know, when, when Jeffrey invited her in, it wouldn't have been, why don't you sit around and think about this? I think Jeffrey is around. That, if you look at that team, I wouldn't call them Jeffrey loyal, loyalists, but they're certainly people who are probably very, Peter Weir, another people, unknown apart from his brief period as education minister, unknown outside the, but a very strategic thinker, very good at the numbers as mm. well. So mm. these are people, what, what I think he's getting Peter and Arlene all to do is look at the numbers, look at the various sections of the party, see what they need. And out of all of that, with all the difficulties that are involved, can they find a coalition willing to sell it? Because unless they, you get that coalition, he's stuffed. And I think my, my instinct remains that is, as it has been for weeks now, months in fact, is that um, this is one of those points that Jeffrey Donaldson is a devolutionist. He doesn't want to be the, the, the unionist leader under whose watch devolution collapses. Mm. So I think he will, I'm not saying he will land in that place he needs to be definitely because maybe the, maybe the powers and forces are too strong. But I think he, if there's a moment to surprise people and show courage, well, this is it. Well, Alex Kane, Bill White, thank you both for coming in once again. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from Sky News and GB News. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland.